welcome to City Breaks London, episode 23. I'm Marion Jones, just coming now quite near the end of the London series. We're on a day out today to somewhere that's half an hour by train away from central London, perhaps a little more if it's a slower train, but really very, very accessible. And that is Windsor, site of that glorious castle, which has been there for very nearly a thousand years, one of the Queen's three official residences a little town absolutely steeped in history and tradition, which, if you have time to get there, is definitely a must-see. West of London, on the River Thames, other very well-known places like Eton and Runnymede, just a stone's throw away, I'll be mentioning both of those later. But to start with, a description from the 17th century, when one William Camden, penning his book Britain, wrote about the situation that what he found here was a high hill which, quote, ariseth with gentle ascent and has a most delightful prospect. He went on to write about wide vales and cornfields and green meadows, all of it, quote, watered with the most mild and calm river Thames. Even a thousand years ago, it was day out distance from London, a day's ride that is, and today certainly a classic day out, on which you can visit the castle wander down the river, perhaps take a boat trip, maybe go on a little half-hour stroll to Eton, home of our poshest and possibly most famous school. So yes, there are lots of reasons to visit Windsor, but of course, of course, the main one is the castle. And as early as 1662, one Thomas Fuller was summing up exactly what this was for. Lots of uses, as he pointed out. Quote, it is a castle for strength, a palace for state, and hath in it a college for learning, a chapel for devotion, and an almshouse of decayed gentlemen for charity. And most of that you can still see today. I'm not so sure about the decayed gentlemen, but that's not much of a loss, is it? Is it a fortress? Well, yes, in theory it still is. Is it a palace? Absolutely. The College of Learning is still there, it being the name for the various people of the church connected to Windsor Castle and next door St George's Chapel. It is too absolutely still a chapel or a place of worship, there being several services every day, not to mention the fact that a good number of royal weddings and christenings and funerals take place there. And perhaps the best summary I found of what the castle's actually for these days was one I found in the guidebook itself. It's the world's oldest and largest inhabited castle, they explain, and it's been in continuous use since it was built just after the Norman Conquest in 1066. Yes, as mentioned already, I think, it's one of the Queen's three official residences, the other two being Buckingham Palace in London and Holyrood in Edinburgh. That is to say that when she's here, she may be just residing, but she may well also be working. It is still today the base for the Order of the Garter, Britain's most prestigious order of chivalry. It's the site of St George's Chapel, one of our finest examples of Gothic architecture. It is the place where a good number of our kings and queens have been buried. It's home to much of the royal collection of paintings and furniture and ornaments and all sorts. It's the backdrop for lots of ceremonial occasions, somewhere where you can rely on seeing some of those precise military bands in their bearskin hats and their bright red jackets with the shiny buttons. And generally, it represents a thousand years of English history. Something you can tell, actually, just by looking at a map of it and reading the names of some of the places inside those walls. The Norman Gate, so a reminder of its origins. Edward III Tower, 
Charles II statue. So links are plenty with previous monarchs. Other buildings give away some of the uses that were made of the castle. The store tower, for example, presumably for food. The magazine tower, so a link to its military past. And the curfew tower. Names of the various rooms inside give away a sense of splendour too. The king's drawing room, the king's dining room, the king's bedchamber. The anti-throne room in which you could wait while it was decided whether you were or weren't a worthy enough person to meet the king. Various drawing rooms, the green drawing room, the crimson one. Various dining rooms, the state, the octagon, etc. The mysteriously named China Corridor. Of course, of course, there's a grand reception room, etc, etc. So, how did it all start? Well, with William the Conqueror, as said. He presumably was a bit nervous that his new country may not accept him. He was nervous particularly of losing London, so he built a ring of defences around the city. This being one of them, just a central wooden tower to start with, but then eventually rebuilt in stone, replaced in 1225 by the Round Tower, which is still there today, and round it, the defence that became the castle walls as they are today. Pretty much as soon as it was up there, it became a popular day out for monarchs. They could ride out from London and be sure of some great hunting in all those lovely forests surrounding the castle. We know that Henry I, who reigned from 1100 onwards, was the first king to decide that maybe he would actually live out here, at least part of the time. It was in the 14th century, under Edward III, that a new ambitious building programme began. He built, it is said, quote, diverse, fair and sumptuous works. So some royal apartments, a massive great hall to be used for feasting. There was especially going to be a need for plenty of feasting after he founded the Order of the Garter. That's very much linked to Windsor Castle and it's quite a nice story which I'm going to retell. It actually has its roots in France where King Edward was busy winning battles at places like Crecy and having large feasts and parties to celebrate, at one of which an incident happened which was going to echo down the centuries right up until today. There was dancing. One of the ladies lost her garter, which was basically a piece of blue ribbon with which she held up her stockings. It fell onto the floor, the king picked it up and tied it round his own leg. Definitely a very flirtatious thing to do and one which set everybody gossiping. The lady in question was Joan of Kent, only 19 apparently, but already twice married, possibly both at the same time. But long story short, a judge told her which of her husbands she should choose. She duly lived with him until he died. And then, in fact, she went on to marry King Edward's son, the Black Prince. But that didn't stop people gossiping about the blue silk garter. Edward felt he had to say something, and the thing he said was in French. On y soit qui mal y pense, he said, which meant, really, shame on you if you think badly of me for this. Just an innocent little gesture was the implication. But it's obviously an incident that stuck in his mind, because a year or two later he's back at Windsor, thinking about setting up a system to gather his trustiest knights around him. Twenty-four, perhaps, you know, a bit like King Arthur had at the round table. And he decided he would call this new order the Order of the Garter. They had their first formal meeting in 1349 on April the 23rd, St George's Day. The Knights became known also as the Fraternity of St George, and it was really from then on that St George began to be thought of as our patron saint. So you can see that St George and Windsor Castle and the Knights of the Garter 
are all completely entwined. And the order is going strong today. Oh yes, the Queen, of course, is sovereign of the order. Several senior members of the royal family are in it too. And then a range of other people chosen for their contribution to public life. The original feast and tournament, which was held every St George's Day, is replaced today by Garter Day, held in June. You may have seen it on TV. It's when the monarch leads a procession from Windsor Castle down to St George's Chapel. I think all 24 members will be there, decked out in their very distinctive blue velvet cloaks, natty blue velvet hats with white ostrich plumes. Sporting lots of insignia, of course. Think gold, plus the cross of St George. And, of course, the motto, Oni Swaki Mali Pense. It's really quite a sight. And actually, if you get in early enough, there are tickets for the public to be allowed into the castle on that day to watch the whole thing. So you can certainly say that Edward III has left his mark on Windsor. Other kings who did the same include Henry VIII, often here for a spot of hunting and hawking, buried here too. Elizabeth I was another monarch who enjoyed coming out to Windsor and took, it is said, quote, great delight in being out in the air. Of course, the Civil War interrupted everything. Windsor Castle was seized by parliamentarians who used it as a place to imprison royalist officers. Poor King Charles I spent his last Christmas here at Windsor and it was to Windsor that after his execution in January 1649, his body was returned and buried. Naturally then, when his son Charles II was restored as monarch, 11 years later, he wanted Windsor Castle to be a symbol of the monarchy. And so he embarked on another huge building programme, a suite of much fancier state apartments, each one increasingly more private. So there was a guard chamber where you could be inspected and it would be decided whether you were allowed to go any further. If you were, you might make it into the presence chamber where, if you were lucky, the king would appear. If he had business to talk to you about more privately, then you could enter the next room along with him, the drawing room, once known as the withdrawing room. But only the most powerful members of the court got into the next room, which was the king's bedchamber. Not, in fact, actually, as it sounds, a private bedroom, but a room where he would meet with his closest advisers. As the guidebook puts it, the opulent bed itself was part of the ritual of dressing and undressing the king, in the presence of the most influential nobles. Officially, the king slept next door, in what is now known as the king's dressing room, to which only his personal servants had access. And actually it goes on to explain that in certain cases, particularly Charles II, he often slept, as they put it, somewhere else entirely. One of his mistresses, Louise de Keruel, had a suite of rooms on the floor below, and another, the actress Nell Gwynne, was given a house outside the castle. Under Charles II then, the rooms were really lavishly decorated. Think oak panelling on the walls, which were hung with expensive tapestries. A real fancy show designed to indicate that the monarchy was back. There was a much quieter period under George III, who made this one of his principal homes. During his reign, he was here for two or three days most weeks. And in the last long ten years, when he was ill and had to be kept away from the public while his son ruled as regent, it was at Windsor that he withdrew. But in happier times, he and Queen Charlotte would be seen out and about quite frequently, one observer noting that he'd met the king in the Royal Park, and that he was, quote, a quiet, good-humoured gentleman in a long blue coat. George was very interested in art, and he added much to the royal collection, buying, for example, 
40 Canaletto paintings, as you do. But much of George III's life at Windsor could be described as one of simple domesticity, something which changed immediately when his son George IV came to the throne, because he, and I'm quoting the guidebook here, transformed the castle into the principal seat of the British monarchy, with rooms of dazzling splendour. A sequence of glittering rooms, as they put it, including things like the library, a grand corridor to display some of the most important pieces of porcelain, a new ballroom, and something called the Waterloo Chamber. Truly a splendid vision of red and gold, all built to celebrate, gloat about, if you will, the victory at Waterloo and the defeat of Napoleon. Paintings were commissioned of all those who played their part, so that their heroics would ever be remembered. It's often said that the heyday of Windsor Castle was really the Victorian era, so only a few years after the death of George IV, with William IV in between, Victoria came to the throne and inherited this magnificently restored castle, where, in the end, she spent much of her time and where many of the major events of her life occurred. Yes, it was a centre for family life, but it was also somewhere where much royal entertaining took place, to the point where, in fact, it was described at the time as being the hub of the British Empire. It was, for example, the scene of the momentous meeting between Victoria and Albert, during which they agreed to marry. It wasn't, in fact, their first meeting. That had been at Kensington Palace in 1836, when the Coburg cousins, Albert and his brother Ernst, came on a visit. You might remember I described that in an earlier episode on Victoria and Albert's London. Remember, she noted in her diary the first evening after they'd met that he is extremely handsome. But three years later, here at Windsor, was the much more momentous meeting. Victoria, having not been too sure, had eventually decided that she would like to marry Albert, and so his visit was awaited very expectantly. It's described very nicely by Lucy Worsley in her biography of Queen Victoria. She tells us how, as tradition demanded, Victoria had to stand at the top of the grand staircase to greet the visitors, who were required to climb up the steps towards her and be greeted watched not just by Victoria, but also by quite a lot of the members of her court. Lucy Worsley tells us how Victoria liked what she saw, wrote in her diary later that they were, quote, looking both very well and much improved. It was with some emotion that I beheld Albert, who is beautiful. Albert, by this stage, he'd been waiting for three years, had decided that perhaps Victoria wasn't going to accept him. So the meeting got off to a bit of a difficult start, but then Victoria, realising how musical Albert was, decided that there would be an evening of dancing and piano playing and whatnot. And, as Lucy Worsley described, this is where things took off. Quote, as they danced and sat and talked, Victoria was eyeing up every feature, assessing his beautiful blue eyes and exquisite nose, his pretty mouth with delicate moustachios, and his beautiful figure, broad in the shoulders and a fine waist all of those quotations from Victoria's diary. It was, continues Lucy Worsley, really as if she were measuring him up as the father of her children. And so followed many years of domestic bliss, the growing family, the musical evenings, concerts and operas, the little dances held in the crimson drawing room, the evenings when stage would be set up in the bay window of the king's drawing room and plays would be performed. Lucy Worsley also gives a description of Christmas Day at Windsor in 1850, when the family walked through the park to dispense presents to some of the families of servants, before attending chapel for a service at 11am, 
gathering in the early evening where the Christmas trees were all lit up, that being a German custom which the rest of the nation has copied ever since. Presents were exchanged, much playing and laughter, and of course a huge great Christmas dinner, with silver cutlery, some of the best china, grand centrepieces of flowers and glassware, and the enjoyment of, quote, a baron of beef served alongside game pie and brawn. But all of this came to a dreadful, largely unexpected end in 1861, when Albert, who was only 42, died here at Windsor Castle in the Blue Room of typhoid fever. Albert lay in bed, Victoria sat by his side, he was drifting in and out of consciousness, sometimes recognising her and calling her his Gutes Frauchen, which is German for good little wife, but often confused and slipping away. As Victoria herself wrote in her diary, two or three long but perfectly gentle breaths were drawn, the hand clasping mine, and, oh, it makes me sick to write it, all, all was over. I stood up, kissed his dear heavenly forehead, and called out in a bitter and agonising cry, my dear darling, then dropped on my knees in mute, distracted despair, unable to utter a word or shed a tear. As you probably know, Victoria's widowhood was very long, grief-stricken, she more or less withdrew from public life, she insisted that Albert's rooms should be left exactly as they had been at the time of his death. His clothes were still there, his gloves, his hat, and a white marble bust of his head. One visitor wrote that even forty years later she could still see, quote, all his things, uniforms, walking sticks, the bed he died in, the palms laid on his coffin, and casts of his hand and his foot. Victoria also insisted that her own boudoir should be kept exactly as it had been at the time of Albert's illness. There was a plaque on the door which read, quote, Every article in this room my lamented husband selected for me. And sure enough, there she kept her bridal wreath and the first bouquet that he had ever given her, displayed in a glass case. It was, writes Lucy Worsley, as if, in many ways, all the clocks at Windsor Castle had stopped in 1861. The Queen was not frequently seen at all in the forty years that followed, much of which she spent at Windsor. It was known that on Sunday afternoons she liked to be wheeled out in her chair to hear the military band play and then to be pushed into the garden to the mausoleum where Albert was buried. After Victoria's very long reign and her reluctance to change anything at all at Windsor in the last forty years of her reign, everything was set for big changes when her son Edward VII succeeded her in 1901. The castle was looking a bit dowdy, at least on the inside, and he embarked on a major spruce-up and modernisation. Electric lights were put in, central heating, new bathrooms. Apparently had a massive clear-out of the innumerable gifts that Victoria had been given on state visits for her golden and diamond jubilees, etc. It was as if a new era was beginning. Something significant happened during World War I, when it was decided that it would be wise for the family to drop their very German-sounding name of Saxe-Coburg-Gotha and replace it with, what else, Windsor. And so, the House of Windsor was born. Our present Queen, Elizabeth, grew up at Windsor. It's the place where she had lessons from her tutors, being the last generation of the royal family who didn't go to school. These days, the Queen is in residence at Windsor most weekends, and she comes for a whole month at Easter, known as the Easter Court period, and again in June, partly because that's when the Order of the Garter service is held, but also because Ascot 
It's just up the road and she does like to go to the races. Sometimes if there's a state visit when she's at Windsor, guests are invited here. You may have seen the Obamas arriving by helicopter, for example. And when that happens, they'll be treated to the full works. A military display, lots of ceremony, a state banquet in St George's Hall, where up to 160 people can enjoy a meal at wonderfully laid tables with porcelain and silver from the Royal Collection. So, if you go to look round, what should you look out for? As usual, there are so many things it would take hours and hours to list them all, so I've gone for the highlight option again. Just going to list a few of the things for which Windsor Castle is particularly well known. They have in their collection 600 or so drawings by Leonardo da Vinci. There is on display a musket ball, the one which killed Lord Nelson at the Battle of Trafalgar, no less. His ship surgeon removed it, it eventually found its way into a locket, which was later presented to Queen Victoria. Look out for a massive green malachite urn, which was a gift from the Tsar of Russia to Queen Victoria. Look out too for Queen Mary's doll's house, designed for her in 1924 by, wait for it, the leading architect of the day, Sir Edward Lutyens. Perfection in miniature form. Other leading artists and designers and craftsmen were all asked to contribute, and it really is a sight to see. Everything, as the guidebook puts it, from miniature leather-bound books, specially written by the top literary names of the early 20th century, to a fully stocked wine cellar with minuscule bottles of real wine, to an exquisite wind-up gramophone at just 14 centimetres, with records such as Rule Britannia and God Save the King. Well, yes, quite. What else? It has electricity, running hot and cold water, lifts which actually work, a lawnmower, a little desk in the Queen's bedroom, with fountain pens, packets of crested writing paper, and a desk blotter. The garden was designed by the renowned horticulturalist Gertrude Jekyll. You get the idea. Paintings galore, of course, by everyone, really. Lucas Cranach, Holbein, Bruegel, the forty canalettos previously mentioned. Lots of royal portraits. So, a couple of King Charles I's children by Anthony van Dyck, a Gainsborough portrait of George III, a slightly less formal portrait of Victoria, Albert and their oldest daughter, along with some dogs, and from the 20th century of George VI, Queen Elizabeth and their two daughters, that being the current Queen and Princess Margaret, her sister, a large black and white photograph taken by Cecil Beaton. Of course you'll want to wander through lots of the rooms, the Queen's Gallery with its blue and gold brocaded walls, silver furniture, which had been presented to Charles II by the City of London, so pleased were they to see him restored to the throne, and so on and so on. Really just rooms to wander through, I think. Because once you have finished with the castle, you absolutely haven't seen everything, because you really shouldn't miss St George's Chapel. It's actually within the grounds of Windsor Castle. It's a working church with several services a day, it's got its own choir, who sing eight services a week in term time. And it all dates back to the beginning of the 13th century. Cloisters built by Edward III as part of his College of St George, and added to across the centuries since then. What to look out for? I think one of the highlights is definitely the royal tombs, which you will notice as you walk round. In date order, there's one for Henry VI, the founder of the nearby Eton College, and indeed of King's College, Cambridge. Edward IV and his Queen, 
who people often insist on calling Elizabeth Woodville rather than Queen, because not everyone accepted the fact that Edward had chosen such a commoner to be his wife. Henry VIII is buried here, although not, in fact, in the grandiose tomb that you might be imagining. He had certainly planned such a thing, but actually it was never completed, and 300 years or so after his death, it was decided to lay a stone over the spot in the middle of the choir towards the front of the church, where he had been buried, as it was said at the time, temporarily. As you walk up towards the altar, do cast your eyes down, and you will see a black tablet on which is written, In a vault beneath this marble slab are deposited the remains of Jane Seymour, Queen of King Henry VIII, 1537, and King Henry VIII, 1547. And then it goes on to say that both King Charles I and an infant child of Queen Anne are also buried here. Charles's body was brought here the day after his execution. It lay in the castle overnight and it was brought down to the chapel in thick snow, which apparently turned the black pall over the coffin completely white. George III had a vault excavated to one side for himself and his queen, Charlotte, and two of their sons, George and William both of whom reigned after him, as George IV and William IV. All the 20th century monarchs are here, Edward VII and his wife Queen Alexandra, their tomb having two marble figures of them in repose, plus Caesar the dog lying at his master's feet. George V and Queen Mary are here too, also with marble effigies. He's wearing his Admiral of the Fleet uniform and his Order of the Garter robes, and as the guidebook tells us, Queen Mary is wearing, quote, ropes of pearls around her neck. Another chapel was built for George VI and Queen Elizabeth, where they both lie along with the ashes of their daughter, Princess Margaret, and a plaque with an extract from the poem which he read so famously on his Christmas radio broadcast in 1939, so just at the start of the Second World War. I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go out into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. There's also on the wall a plaque for his brother Edward, who reigned very briefly as Edward VIII before he abdicated to marry the twice-divorced American Mrs. Wallace Simpson. The plaque reads, His Royal Highness the Duke of Windsor lay in state here on the 2nd and 3rd of June, 1972, born 23rd of June, 1894, died 28th of May, 1972, King Edward VIII, 20th of January to the 11th of December, 1936. But he wasn't buried here in the chapel, he is buried in nearby Frogmore. What else to look out for apart from the royal tombs? Well, definitely what is described as one of the best displays of heraldic art in the world. 24 glorious colourful banners representing the 24 living companions of the Order of the Garter hang from the roof and a glorious sight they make too. When a companion dies, his flag is removed. So there's a second tradition, one of something called stall plates, the little plaques representing each companion and left in place forever. There are about 800 of them, so a couple of hundred have got lost somewhere, because Prince William became the 1,000th member of the order in the early 2000s. Anyway, the 800 or so are there, colourful, 
full of crests and family mottos, most of them in Latin, of course. And just to pick one at random, that of Sir John Chandos, one of the founder members of the Knights of the Garter, who fought alongside Edward III at the Battles of Cressy and Poitiers. Something else to look out for, the spectacular stained glass window, known as the West Window, which dates from the early 1500s, although it was reconfigured in the 19th and 20th centuries. 75 panels representing kings and princes and popes and saints. Pride of place to Henry VI, right at the top in the centre. And as you stare at it and wonder at its beauty, do recall that during World War II, the whole thing was dismantled and taken away for safekeeping. You might like to glance at the organ, which was actually put there in 1966, but which is decorated with garter badges, Tudor roses, dragons and greyhounds. Look out too for lots of representations of St George, statues, carvings, paintings, etc. Anyone who's slaying a dragon is likely to be St George. There's also a portrait of Edward III, founder of the Order of the Garter, and a very striking one it is too. He's sporting a floor-length red velvet cloak with ermine trim. He's got gold panels on his other clothes. He's wearing the crown of England, and he's got two other crowns, pushed onto his sword as sort of add-on decorations. These turn out to be the Crown of Scotland and the Crown of France. One wonders what the good people of Scotland and France think about that. Perhaps one of the most memorable things to see is the statue of Princess Charlotte, which has its own alcove and which recalls her very sad story. So she was the only, well, only legitimate anyway, daughter of George the Fourth. So she would have been our queen, were it not for the tragic fact that at the age of only 21, she died in childbirth and the baby too was stillborn. She had been a very popular princess. The whole nation mourned her. A public subscription was set up and that paid for the statue which you see there today. She and the baby are buried in a vault elsewhere. But here in this alcove, you will see all crafted in marble her dead body covered in a shroud at the base of the statue, a figure of her above, pointing heavenwards, and two angels next to her, one of whom is carrying the stillborn baby. So it really does seem as if all of English history is represented here in this building. My absolute favourite sentence from the guidebook kind of sums that up in a very, well, amusing to me anyway, way, when it says, quote, the Royal Maundy service has been held at Windsor on a few occasions, although with a particularly long gap between the 1423 and 1959 occasions. Here in Windsor you can brush aside 500 years, just like that, because it tells us, does it not, that the castle has been here practically forever and will be here, presumably, forever. Although it is not actually the only thing to do in Windsor. You certainly could spend a whole day at the castle, but if you want to mix and match a little bit, other suggestions would include go and visit the Great Park. Again, the guidebook mentions that that has been, quote, enclosed since the 13th century. What was once the vast hunting forest so beloved of medieval kings, full of woodland, ancient oaks, all very English, grassland, and, a bit more formally, something called the Long Walk, a long tree-lined avenue planted by Charles I, who thought a grand linking road between the castle and the Great Park was just what the area needed. The Great Park is open to the public, something not true of the bit nearer the castle, known as Home Park, which includes Frogmore House and the garden. 
the place where you can see Prince Albert and Victoria's mausoleum, which is only open to the public every now and then. Another great thing to do to get the flavour of Windsor is to go on a boat trip. If you walk down the hill from the castle for really just a couple of minutes, you'll come to the River Thames, where there are boat trips on offer. Short ones, 40 minutes or so, a little taster. Two-hour ones, which will take you past Eton College, Windsor Racecourse, right up to Maidenhead and Brunel's Bridge, etc., to Bray Lock and back. All very three men in a boat, if you've read that novel by Jerome K. Jerome. There's a separate trip from Runnymede Boathouse, a sort of hop-on, hop-off thing that takes 45 minutes, where you will see the Runnymede site where Magna Carta was signed, and various memorials to Magna Carta, of course, but also to the Royal Air Force, and, I don't know why, to John F. Kennedy. And definitely I would recommend a wander over the bridge in Windsor to Eton. If you go again down the hill from the castle, bear right a little bit, you will come to a bridge, and when you cross over it, you are in Eton High Street. So you can wander along towards the famous Eton School, past Billings and Edmonds, the Outfitters, that's where the boys get their amazing frock coats and white cravats. You might spot the Eton Antique Bookshop, quite a lot of oldie-worldie tea shops and pubs and whatnot. If it's term time, you might see some Eton boys in their from-another-era garb. There's the Museum of Eton Life. I think it's only open on Sunday afternoons, actually. But if you do manage to get in, you can learn there the story of life at the school from 1440 onwards. Unravel such mysteries as what is the Eton Wall game and what is the procession of boats. I think if you have a child with you, they'll be allowed to dress up in Eton uniform. Keep going along the high street, not more than 15 minutes or so, and you'll arrive at the school buildings of this very famous institution where so many of our royals and prime ministers have been educated. Alma mater of practically everyone, or everyone male, you've ever heard of, the Duke of Wellington and such like. A school today of about 1,300 boys, aged, I think, 13 to 18, for which the fees currently in 2021 are quoted as being up to £48,000 a year. If you want to spend a bit longer in Eton, you could Google Eton Walkway before you set out and download a map, which will show you a two-mile saunter you can go on a circular walk with 18 bronze plaques along it. Each one, of course, has a school coat of arms on it, and they point out points of interest. So you will actually see the site of the Eton Wall game and the Eton Boathouse and pass various museums such as the Natural History Museum and the Museum of Antiquities. It's all very English, as is indeed the entire idea of visiting Windsor at all. Definitely something I would recommend, though I would also recommend ignoring the idea that you can pop out for a morning and then spend the afternoon somewhere in central London. There's enough in Windsor to keep you busy all day for sure. Your day will be packed with tales from history. It will be certainly quintessentially English. And ever afterwards, when you see Windsor on the telly, because there's a major royal event or perhaps a state visit, you will remember it fondly. So that's it for today then. Next week, we will be returning to the city centre to have a look at some of the many, many shops and markets which make London one of the shopping capitals of the world. But until then, I wish you a very pleasant week. And thank you, of course, for your company today. Goodbye. Goodbye.